0: Is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson.
1: I'm Charles Feldman. The country lays to rest its Queen of 70 years. The UK honored Queen Elizabeth today with a massive state funeral, the first since Winston Churchill. Crowds of people lined the streets of London and around Windsor Castle to pay tribute to the only monarch many of them had ever known. We'll go in depth into the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. President Biden says the COVID pandemic is over, but not everyone agrees. And Puerto Rico is hit with another big hurricane that left the whole island without electricity. The damage is being called catastrophic.
0: Bank account getting drained
1: by the rising prices. Some relief coming soon, thanks to the
0: state. So we'll talk about that. New food item might be coming soon to the produce section. Purple tomatoes purple yeah we're gonna ask like barney purple yeah or like dark deep purple you know and
1: that's very important to know (laughs) people want to know it's it people want to know what kind of purple it is I know. the the phantom of the
0: opera's (laughs) famous chandelier gonna drop on broadway for the final time in a few months popular musical ending its record setting run that's at the end of the show
1: Right now, though, we start with Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Back with us from London is Christo Fufas, who is a royal commentator and TV presenter in the UK. Christo, thanks for being with us. You know, when when watching that, that entire, and spectacle really is the word for it, the precision is incredible. The timing, every detail. Uh, this was years, obviously, in the making. And I understand that Queen Elizabeth herself planned most of it, right?
2: Uh, Good evening from London, and absolutely, you're right. I mean, it it is what Britain seems to do best. And uh, as I've said before, we seem to have a lot of issues both sides of the Atlantic, whether that be political, whether it be around the cost of living, which I know you're talking about. However, when it comes to the pomp and the majesty of a ceremony like this, we seem to do it, dare I say, uh, may I be presumptuous enough to say, better than anywhere in the world. You are quite right, there was not a foot put wrong. And this Operation London Bridge, as it is known behind the scenes, this has been in the making for, I would say, decades, actually. Certainly the last 20 years, there was a full rehearsal uh, a couple of nights ago, late at night. Um, But but yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, This was absolutely stage managed to the second, in fact, The funeral cortege left Westminster Abbey where Her Majesty had been lying in state at precisely 10.44. That is because every footstep had been timed before the cortege arrived to Westminster Abbey. Similarly, when she left Buckingham Palace to make her way to Westminster Abbey to lay in state, that was at 2.22 p.m. Again, because
0: we <laughs> perfect time yeah, right on the dot, right on the dot. Yeah. It's almost like we saw two different things today, too. There was the huge gathering at the Abbey with with more world leaders and probably will ever be assembled for anything else ever again. And then we had the service at Windsor, which you could see it on on the family faces was very, very personal.
2: Uh, absolutely. And you're right. That was a smaller service in Windsor, than the um, 2,000, many of whom were dignitaries, royalty, your very own president as well, all in Westminster Abbey. Then the uh, cortege moved through the streets of London, all of those sites of London that it passed. Really poignant moment, actually, that funeral cortege on the back of that gun carriage. The gun carriage, by the way, that was first used in 1902. It was the carriage that, that carried her father in nineteen fifty two at his funeral, that gun carriage pulled by one hundred and forty two sailors passing at Buckingham Palace so that the Queen passes that residence for the final time as it made its way to the Wellington Arch before being transferred to the State Hearse and then transported to Windsor, where there was the second ceremony where the Queen with eight hundred guests viewing much more intimate and was lowered into the royal vault. And then in the last hour or so, there has been a third ceremony just for family in the St. George's Chapel, just off Windsor Castle. And that is where the Queen has been uh, uh, committed to the, uh, the, the chapel, essentially buried there with her husband Philip and her parents and the ashes of her sister have also right. been placed
1: in uh, let, let me get in one quick thing before we uh, we go. Uh, to Americans, it seems as if, looking forward, that uh, Charles is being proclaimed king three times. He, was, he became king upon his mother's death, right? Then there was a ceremony where he was kind of officially made king. He signed the papers. Signed the papers. Yeah. And now there's yet to be a coronation, right? When does that happen?
2: Uh, well, th- no date has been set. Many people are predicting that it will be sooner than when The Queen had a coronation. She was ascended to the throne in February '52. She had a coronation much later in 1953. It's predicted probably over the course of the summer. But you're quite right, it is almost three times. He is monarch the moment the previous monarch dies. Then there is the accession ceremony in front of the Privy Council with the papers. And then, you're quite right, it's completely stamped when it comes to the coronation, which we're expecting next year.
0: Christophe Fufas, a royal commentator, TV presenter there in the U.K.
1: OK, the pandemic uh, hasn't been uh, declared over by the World Health Organization. But last night, President Biden went on 60 Minutes and said, is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's but the pandemic is over. Well, Dr. Robert Wachter is a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco. Thanks for being back with us, doctor. Well, is the president of the United States right when he pronounces the pandemic is, and I quote again, over?
3: It's hard to know because there's no bright line separating pandemic from the next thing. It is clear that the cases have come way down, deaths are down, although still at too high a level. Uh, and things are relatively stable. And those are sort of the definitions of when you're out of a pandemic. So I think the key thing here is to communicate that we're moving into a new stage where we have to deal with this as a long-term threat rather than the acute threat. But we can't lose sight of the severity of it. Still tens of millions of people you know, getting infected, uh, 400 deaths a day. Still a big deal. Still, things, Still something we have to pay a lot of attention to. But I think he's signaling that we're entering a new phase. And I think that's reasonable. We are.
0: I think a lot of people concentrate on one of those last numbers, of the 400 deaths a day, and they say that is still a large number, and the vast majority of people seem to be operating like nothing's happening at all.
3: Yeah, it is a large number. It's you know th- two or three times what we see in a severe flu season. Uh, some of those deaths are what people call uh, with rather than from COVID. Someone who has COVID but came in and died of something else. But it's still too high. I mean, the real tragedy, you know, any death is a tragedy, but the real tragedy is a fair number of those deaths are preventable and and preventable with tools we have today. The evidence that you are safer and less likely to die if you've gotten your full complement of boosters is ironclad. There's no question about it. And Paxlovid, the medicine, uh, the antiviral medicine helps as well. So, you know, a lot of those deaths could be prevented with things that are available for free today to everyone.
1: Why does it seem, though, uh, to some doctor, as if these are now decisions that are being made uh, politically as opposed to medically? And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, we were, as a country, kind of slow in embracing that there was a pandemic to begin with. And that was because, as you know, the Trump administration really didn't want to admit that it was a problem and it kind of admitted it kicking and screaming. And now it seems as if perhaps it, there's a political reason why this president is in a hurry to end it.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's always going to be quasi-scientific and quasi-political, because political means, you know, the choices of the governed. And clearly, you know, in a world where mandates are largely done, which I think is appropriate given the state of the current threat, um, these are decisions that individuals are making and will articulate and, and, and implement some ways through the people they elect. So, I, you know, it is clear that the administration would like to move on from COVID, would like to signal that we've made a lot of progress. I think all that's true. They're doing it in a way that's pretty nuanced and hard to capture, which is that we're trying to move on and yet the threat is real and you should be taking your booster and all of that a tricky thing to get right, but it's it, it's inevitably political, and of course, the, this epidemic has been politicized like none before it, which makes it even more complicated.
0: Booster uptake has not been what a lot of medical people had hoped it would be. Do you worry that not enough people are going to get this latest shot, or since it's new and it's for the Omicron variant, does that make it different enough?
3: I, I don't think there's any evidence yet that it's going to be massively better than the other boosters. I just think that if it's time for you to get a booster, which means your last shot was, let's say, more than six months ago, you should get a booster, and it happens to be that this booster, which is a rejiggered booster, more specifically tailored to the, the virus that's actually out there, is the one to get. So I got mine two days ago, and if it was the same old booster, I would have gotten it, too. It was six or eight months since my last one. I'm 64 years old, so I would have gotten that, but this is the one that's out there, and I think it's likely to be a little bit better than the old booster because it's been tailored. I don't think it's going to be massively better. It just is clear that people who have gotten boosted and stay up to date with their boosts are massively safer than those who haven't included, you know, including a significant decrease in mortality compared to someone who just got the original two shots and has not been boosted.
0: Dr. Robert Wachter, professor, chair Department of Medicine, UC
1: San Francisco. Coming up, pharmacies are dealing with a shortage of a drug that helps people with ADHD. And one of the most recognizable and most popular musicals ever is shutting down on Broadway. We'll explain why.
0: Right now, most people in Puerto Rico without electricity. Many others, no drinkable water after Hurricane Fiona slammed into the island over the weekend. Mm -hmm. Governor describes the damage as catastrophic. Puerto Rico still trying to recover from Maria. That was in 2017. With us now is Washington Post reporter Arelise Hernandez. She's been covering the aftermath of Fiona. Thanks for being here. What are they saying about the power situation and, and how long basically the whole island... Maybe dark.
4: Right. So, so far, they haven't given a date that that right now they're still evaluating the system and there are still parts of Puerto Rico that they can't get to. So they can't figure, you know, they can't do assessments or do any repair work. Right now, about 100,000 people in Puerto Rico have electricity that's mostly in the metropolitan area, but that leaves the majority of the island still uh, without power.
1: And isn't a big part of the problem that they haven't recovered fully from the last one a couple of years ago, right?
4: That's correct. Um, I mean, Hurricane Maria devastated what was already a very fragile power grid, uh, one that had not been maintained for many decades. And if you remember the power uh, utility, the public utility is bankrupt. Um, so there had been there hadn't been a lot of work done. And so there's now a private company that's running it, but it's uh, yeah, Puerto Rico certainly has not recovered uh, significantly from, from Hurricane Maria.
0: And was it just a very slow process to try and get some of this stuff back up to, to where it should be?
4: Yes. uh, Part of it was, you know, navigating the bureaucracy of sort of the FEMA money disbursement. uh, And some of it was, you know, getting to the phase of planning and identifying all of these places that need work. Um, But a lot of progress has made in the last year and a half. But some of these things do take time. Some of them take a necessary amount of time.
1: You ticked off two reasons. Let me suggest a third, even though they are, of course, citizens of the U.S. Are they being treated as second class ones?
4: That depends on who you ask in Puerto Rico. I was just on the phone with the mayor of Yabucoa, which is a, a town in the southeast, and he would tell you that every time someone passes by a bridge that hasn't been repaired, that it, it feels like unequal treatment in Puerto Rico. Remember, Puerto Rico is a possession of the United States, but technically doesn't belong, even though it's full of U.S. citizens. And so there's a lot of sort of colonial history that's enmeshed and all that that complicates the way people view all this.
0: Well, when you view some of the coverage of it or or how people talk about it, it also does it feel sometimes like people talk about Puerto Rico like it is this far away place and they're not really part of the country. All of that's kind of meshed in when, when we do have to point out, you know, some things are different in terms of what kind of benefits you can get, but they are U.S. citizens.
4: That's correct, and I'll give you an example. So, before Hurricane Maria five years ago, about forty percent of Americans did not know that Puerto Ricans were U.S. citizens. That number has increased significantly since then. But if the question is whether Puerto Rico is an afterthought afterthought for the United States. Well, out of sight, out of mind. Um, you know, it's it's it is far away uh, to some degree, about three hour flight from Washington D.C. or from New York. Um, but in terms of the significant sort of contributions that Puerto Ricans have made militarily, culturally. Um, uh, scientifically, to this country, you would hope that um, it would it would get more attention. As a Puerto Rican myself,
1: and is it? Do you think now?
4: I think that people do remember a lot of what happened with Hurricane Maria, and and that is enough to to move hearts here in the United States. I, I think. Um, more attention is always better. And if if there's one person who helps to bring that attention, it's somebody like Bad Bunny, <laughs> the number one global <laughs> artist in the world right now. <laughs> but um, oh, more attention is always better.
0: Washington Post reporter Arlise Hernandez. Thank you.
1: This is KNX
0: In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felton. Inflation's been a big problem, impacting just about everything
1: from gas to food prices. California helping people out. Most people in the state will be getting their inflation relief tax refund payments starting in October. But will the extra money actually help? With us is Jeremy White, co-writer of Politico's California Playbook. Thanks for being with us before we get into the the issue of whether it's going to help, I think most people are probably asking the same question: uh, When am I getting the money? How much am I likely to get? And uh, are we sure I'm getting it?
5: That's a great question. Uh, the expectation is that this money is going to start going out in early October. The amount that people get varies depending on how much they make per year. It can be anywhere from. $350 uh, down to uh, $200 per person plus an additional payment uh, if you have a dependent that is capped at $1,050 uh, per household. And, uh, you know, this is something that is coinciding most likely with ballots hitting people's mailboxes. And I think that it's a reasonable question to wonder if this is going to affect how people are feeling as they also contemplate how they're going to vote.
0: Yeah. Was there a way to get this out faster, or is this just like, oh, it just so happens to fall right before the election when everyone's getting $200 checks in the mail?
5: That's a great question. It is a fairly complex process to get this money out. It's going to go out in the form of uh, either direct deposits for people who've filed their taxes electronically, people who filed their taxes, electronic, who, uh, filed their taxes the old fashioned way will be mailed a debit card. A lot of dispute as they were hammering out this deal between the legislature and the governor about exactly what form those payments would take and what would be the quickest way to do it. And so, of course, the fact that that deal was cemented months ago and and the money is now about to go out, it certainly um, has, uh, has raised some eyebrows among folks who remembered the debate centered to a great degree on how do we do this quickly.
1: Well, you know, everything relating to cars is so expensive in this state. I figured out the other day, I did go on, there's a, a little kind of calculator uh, that you can go on in the state to figure out how much money you're going to get. Are they sending you some? Well, here's the thing. <laughs> I have to re-register my car in another few weeks, so I figured out that if I do get any money back, it's it, more, goes back to the it goes state. right back to the state because <laughs> I'm going to owe so much money in order to re-register the car. And I'm sure that a lot of people are going to have that same experience.
5: No doubt. And uh, costs are high on a lot of fronts right now. I think anybody who's uh, filled up their car at the gas station has experienced that. And uh, yet at the same time, California had an enormous, historically large budget surplus this year. So these payments do reflect an attempt to, to share some of that wealth, literally. And, uh, you know, obviously a few hundred bucks only goes so far, but it certainly can help
0: when somebody gets it and it's 250 or whatever it is and they remember back and think wasn't this supposed to be like 600 or 800 that was the original number right
5: there were various numbers um and ways of uh making these payments happen that were thrown out there as as the negotiations went on i don't know how closely your average voter uh followed that debate that they might remember, hey, I had heard a bigger number than this. Certainly, I think that's possible. Uh, I suspect uh, a lot of folks had forgotten that this was even going to happen if they knew in the first place. It's
0: going to be surprise
1: checks now because it's been so long. (laughs) Why are they sending me this? (laughs) Wouldn't it have been better, as some had suggested early on, to just decrease in the long term the uh, state tax on gasoline? Wouldn't that have had uh, more bang for the buck, would have been more visible at the pump, and people would have felt it maybe perhaps more directly than maybe getting a fairly measly check that they're going to, as in my case, giving right back to the state anyway?
5: I think that depends who you ask. Uh, Legislative, Democratic legislative leaders were adamant that they did not want to touch the gas tax. Remember, the increases in the gas tax to fund road repairs were something that were a huge political battle back in 2017. Uh, leaders were reluctant to sort of give away that victory. And there was a lot of concern as well that that money, uh, those savings would not necessarily make their way back to consumers. There were fears that this could sort of line the profit margins of some of these oil companies. So while that was something that we saw some Republicans and indeed even a governor himself talk up ultimately it was a non-starter uh, for democratic legislative leaders
0: Jeremy White co-writer Politicos California playbook
1: a national shortage of the drug Adderall uh, is having an impact on people with ADHD a survey by the National Community Pharmacists Association finds more than 60% of pharmacies are struggling to get the drug FDA first reported a shortage in 2019. It was supposed to last
0: until May of this year. It's still ongoing due to supply chain problems. With us is Ronald Brown, professor and dean of the School of Integrated Health Sciences, UNLV, board-certified psychologist, expert in ADHD. So 60% of pharmacies struggling to get a hold of this. That's a pretty big problem.
6: It is. It is. And one that's certainly alarming to parents, particularly at this time of year when um, Teachers begin to notice that children aren't attending in school and performance. Um, Children have been in school for a couple of weeks now, and they note that performance may not be up to expectation, and their concerns. And then the diagnosis of ADHD comes about, and your pediatrician or your family doctor recommends Adderall, and um, you're unable to get it from your pharmacy. It why, is
1: why is there a shortage? Is there a shortage?
6: Apparently, there's indicating that there is a shortage. Um, I don't know why there's a shortage. Um, there's not a shortage with other stimulants. Um, I don't know exactly why there is a shortage um, with regard to the drug. I don't know, but there is a shortage. But fortunately, not all is lost. There are other options for families. There are other stimulants that can be used, particularly in the in- interim. So with this medication, you don't have to build up levels. The effects of the medication dissipate pretty rapidly after you stop using it. So um, if you, you could go. There are other options in terms of using a, another type of stimulant. Um, what makes what
0: makes Adderall the go to as opposed to to some of those others though
6: i I think many pediatricians are comfortable with it they know the effects of it there's a long term release, what they call a sustained release formulation of the Adderall that you can use um that basically um you administer it, and the effects of the medication last over the course of the day and many pediatricians have felt comfortable with that. But there are also long-term formulations of other medications as well, other stimulant medications as well. So it's what we call the same class of medication, and Adderall falls in the class of medication called the stimulant. So if one particular medication within that class doesn't work, usually what we do is we try another, another stimulant medication which in this case is we would go to another stimulant medication because the Adderall isn't available
1: I'm right curious. I- I'm curious if we've had the situation before with Adderall. Has it been in a sort of allegedly a short supply? Does it sort of miraculously come back with an increase in price, that kind of thing?
6: I have not heard of, a, um, of, of this kind of situation before. You know, I know I, I read something in the Wall Street Journal that indicated that there was a shortage so I think the veracity of that is true, but I don't think that they're deliberately, um, and particularly this falls under the drug of what they call a controlled substance that's regulated by the Drug Enforcement Agency um, to make sure that none of it gets around into inappropriate hands, if you will, um, that it's not abused um, or that it's not used inappropriately. And so there's a fair amount of control, and I believe they're probably If they're saying that there is, in fact, a shortage, there probably is.
0: What do we know about Um, the rates that this is being prescribed these days? Are are we, are they, the doctors, prescribing more of it than they used to?
6: We know that there's been an increase in the use of um, these medications. And um, I think part of it coincides with the mental health issues that are happening, that um, more kids are struggling in college to keep up more um, kids in school are struggling, particularly after the pandemic, Um, and there are fewer mental health services. We know that the ideal treatment or management for children with ADHD, children and adolescents, if you will, is the use of stimulant medication as well as behavior management. And with clinicians being in short supply, there's a mental health epidemic, if you will. And with fewer practitioners being in supply, you know, the primary care doctor or the pediatrician or the family practice doc is apt to use medication, at least as a, an immediate solution to some of the problems that are happening. So what we know is that, yes, the use of these medications have increased over the course of time.
0: You know, you were talking about those school kids going to school and and teachers are noticing, you know, and then they get to the pediatrician. I also wonder about, you know, adults who are now super stressed out because if they think I can't get my medication and now I'm going to suffer at work or I'm going to feel like I can't get enough done, I'm taking more breaks or my focus is all over the place. I mean, to be stuck in that and not knowing when that's going to end, you factor in you know mental health. There's a whole challenge right there just trying to get the medication that that you need.
6: Right, right. But. Fortunately, there are other types of medication within the same class called the stimulants that can be used. Um, So I don't think, um, you know, it's like a major crisis. It's not like a shortage of um, if you only had one type of insulin, for example, and where there's no insulin being produced. There are other kinds of stimulants that can be used, and they could be used in the interim until all this gets better. It's not like the baby formula where there was one type of formula that was being produced. Um, There are other types of stimulants that can be used and that have been demonstrated to be effective.
0: How does it work, even for people who who don't need to take it? I think we've all heard of Adderall, and we know it can help you maintain your focus. But what's going on in there when it does?
6: Well, it it helps um, the brain, um, particularly with a, a neurotransmitter called dopamine. And dopamine is believed to regulate attention and concentration. So the action of this medication is primarily dopaminergic. And um, the stimulants work well for that. They've been used for well over 50 years. They've been demonstrated when used appropriately to be safe. They do have some adverse effects. Um, but they can be managed, those adverse effects can be managed, and um, primarily they work in enhancing attention um, for children. And particularly during this time of year, when um, children get into difficulty, you know, school has been in session in some areas of the country for almost a month, and teachers begin to notice that kids are having problems. Um, So I don't think that teachers should be prescribing the medication, But very frequently, teachers will refer children to um, or refer refer families to their doctors, to their pediatricians, to their family practice docs. And um, there's a way of assessing for ADHD, Um, and typically it's by taking a a history, by gauging the, the degree of attentional problems compared to the child's peers, and particularly within a particular classroom.
0: Ronald Brown there, professor, dean of the School of Integrated Health Sciences, UNLV. Thanks.
1: This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson.
0: I'm Charles Feldman. Get your crayons out. If we asked you to draw a tomato, chances are you're probably going to color it red. There are green ones, but you usually just see the red ones.
1: Yeah, and, and I don't like green crayons anyway. So, yeah, red. There you go. Yeah, but what if we told you that stores could soon carry purple tomatoes. Now, I know people are going to go, oh, there are purple tomatoes. No, not like these. And it might happen. Scientists in the UK, they've created a genetically modified purple tomato that the USDA has now just approved, meaning it could be sold in stores next year. Nathan Pumplin is CEO and president of Norfolk Healthy Produce, which hopes to sell these tomatoes. Nathan, what kind of shade of purple are we talking about here?
7: This is this is very dark, very royal purple. The special thing about these tomatoes is it is purple throughout the entire fruit. Many people, I'm glad I can I can share the news with you. So many people say, hey, I've already seen a purple tomato at my grocery store. And that's true. So there are a number of purple tomatoes that you can buy, but they're purple on the skin. And when you cut them open in the middle, they're typically red. So what's different about ours is you cut it in half and in the middle, it is this super dark, rich purple
1: color. Why does the world need a purple tomato?
7: That's a great question. What we know is there are a lot of people in the world who would really like a purple tomato. And this is the kind of product that offers benefits in the form of more nutrition and also benefits in the form of less food waste. It turns out this purple tomato has a longer shelf life.
0: When we talk about nutrition, where's the extra nutrition coming from? You get the purple from, from the same stuff as like blueberries, how they get that blue.
7: Exactly right. Yep. So the extra nutrition is um, a set of nutrients called anthocyanins. And this is what makes blueberries superfoods. Um, there's also at high levels in eggplants, in cherries. And what we're offering is these type of nutrients in a tomato.
1: Now, I know if I go to, like, a really good uh, favorite Italian restaurant, they'll often say, would you like your pasta with a with a nice red sauce? <laughs> are, are we getting to the point where the other option is going to be, would you like it with a nice purple sauce?
7: I certainly hope so. You know, sometimes you say, hey, I'd like the red sauce. Other times you say, you know, I'd like the pesto. I'd like the green sauce. Um, you know, I just like the butter sauce. And so... You know, a a future where sometimes you go in and you get the purple sauce, we think that'd be fantastic.
0: Does it taste like the tomato that I'm used to, the
1: regular red one?
7: I hope it tastes better than the tomato that you're usually used to. (laughs) It tastes great, and it tastes like a tomato.
1: There are people that freak out about genetically engineered food. And to get it to be purple, it's genetically engineered, right? That's correct. So what's the pitch, sales pitch to those who are going to go? I don't want my tomatoes Just genetically engineered. Yeah. yeah.
7: Then please continue as you're doing. One of the things that that we really like about the purple tomato is it is obviously different. So people who say I'm really not comfortable with it, um, great, don't eat it. You don't. You don't have to. It's not going to sneak into your food. Um, there will, there will still be tons of red tomatoes. There will still be organic tomatoes. There will be non-GMO verified tomatoes. What we're offering is not a product to those people. They have lots of products to choose from right now. What we're offering is a product to those people who say, I would really like a beautiful purple tomato. I would really like a tomato that tastes great and it's high in antioxidants. And we know that there's a lot of people out there in the world who feel that way from chefs, from people in the produce industry, and to many everyday average tomato consumers say, hey, I'd really love to have this, and those are the folks who we'd like to be able to offer something to.
0: Does it make it, it different at all that, that how it was modified is from something that's kind of natural and, and has been studied rather than growing this in a lab and saying, here's this new, whatever I'm going to splice in.
7: It, it makes a big difference to a lot of people. So the thing that that's added into the purple tomato is two genes from snapdragons. Snapdragons are edible flowers and they're another plant and you know, we talked about already, there are purple tomatoes that you can get. So tomatoes do make anthocyanins. This is not a very unnatural thing. What we've done is simply introduce an on switch, which turns on production of these antioxidants throughout the entire fruit instead of just the skin. And for many people, that's much more comfortable than, you know, the gene came from a fish, for instance
1: so the the u uh, s Agriculture Department pretty much just gave the stamp of approval, right? So when will these be available? So
7: what the u s Department of Agriculture decided was these purple tomatoes don't don't present any added risk to um, as a plant pest than any normal tomato, and therefore we can grow them outside, we can breed with them, um, they're, they behave, as far as the USDA sees, as another tomato. Um, we are engaged with the Food and Drug Administration, with the FDA, on their consultation program, and we plan to complete that process before they're commercially available. Um, what we're looking at is starting very limited launches through test markets, in 2023 and 2024 i want to mention our first our first product is a cherry tomato and we do want to have that nice big beefsteak slicer tomato that can go on a burger can go on an impossible burger um, and this will be really striking
1: nathan pumplin there making the purple tomatoes well you know i guess he has a point i mean there are yellow colored tomatoes right and and green tomatoes so why not they're gonna be more like carrots now yeah. You know, all the different, different colors. Yeah, yeah. I guess I could. Maybe I'll buy it. coming around? Yeah, I mean, well, I don't buy stuff <laughs> anyway, so it doesn't matter. But Open for, the fridge, there's like... Yeah, if it's it's miraculously there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. We have the longest-running musical in Broadway history shutting its doors after 35 years. Yep, The Phantom of the Opera, ending its long run in February. Andrew Lloyd Webber's show's famous chandelier
0: drops, but uh, no more, at least on Broadway. Michael Paulson, theater reporter for The New York Times with us. Michael, thanks for being here. So why is it going away? Did it kind of just run its course after a very long run?
8: Yeah, but its course run was uh, uh, weakened by the pandemic. Uh, It's had a really long run and nothing has ever run forever. But also, uh, tourism hasn't fully rebounded and uh, office workers haven't fully returned to work in Manhattan. And both of those things hurt at the box office.
1: But the show is going to continue, right? For example, in London, is it just cheaper to do the show in other places?
8: Uh, It's still running in London. It is running in a less expensive fashion where... They shut down during the pandemic and came back with a smaller orchestra. So they were able to reduce costs in a way that they can't do here. And uh, they also are about to launch their first uh, production in China. And uh, this is kind of wild. They have a new deal with Antonio Banderas to develop a new production in Spanish. So Phantom is going to continue in various places uh, around the planet, but after february not in new york city
0: does it feel weird like it's not going to be on broadway that that poster is not going to be somewhere because it was always an ad that you'd see when you were in in the city you'd see the face and the mask It was always there
8: you know it feels so weird in a way i've known that this day would eventually come people have often talked about oh phantom's having some weak weeks it's can't run forever i never i guess really believed it it just felt like part of the furniture it was always here it was in some ways synonymous with Broadway for a lot of tourists it was the thing they wanted to see and I think something about its longevity plus you know it's this gothic melodrama with this sweeping score and these enormous stage spectacle for many people it was what a musical is and it's uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine that it's not going to be
1: here. But showbiz being showbiz, why do I have this feeling that maybe it'll go dark for a couple of years, if that, and then there'll be some sort of with great fanfare uh, comeback?
8: I mean, you're not wrong. That happened with Les Mis and Miss Saigon and Cats, all of which are from the same producing team. It's certainly possible to remember to imagine that that. Phantom will go away for a while uh, until they think there's enough demand and then come back, perhaps in some slimmed down or slightly reimagined form, or perhaps much like it is now. But for now, it's going to close and this theater that it's occupied for longer than many Broadway actors have been alive is going to have something else in it. And that does feel like the end of an era.
0: When things do come back, is that kind of, do you almost expect them to after a certain amount of years or some sort of revival? I mean, Music Man with Hugh Jackman's on right now, right? Anything Goes has come back five times.
8: Absolutely. Lots of shows come back. There are lots of shows that don't. Many of them have uh, uh, plot issues that make them not really palatable for a contemporary audience because of shifting attitudes toward gender or race or sexuality, but many shows are revived. That's part of the kind of bread and butter of Broadway. It's a mix of of new titles and adaptations of films and, you know, return productions of beloved shows from the past. I, you, Oklahoma, My Fair Lady, whatever. Yeah. You,
1: you mentioned that London is kind of a slim down version. And if it were to come back to Broadway, maybe that too. What does a slimmed down version look like? Fewer musicians, I guess, for one. Do they drop a, I don't know, a light bulb instead of a chandelier? What do they do? to Right off somebody's head. (laughs) Yeah. What do they do do to slim (laughs) it down? That's the
8: immersive experimental downtown production. (laughs) I I don't think you get that. Way on Broadway. uh, People cost a lot of money. And uh, Phantom on Broadway right now has a 27-person orchestra. That's a lot of salary costs. That's much larger uh, than the uh, bands for most contemporary musicals. So something like reducing the size of that does save a lot of money. Uh, You know, it's theoretically possible to reduce cast size over time. But, you know, part of Phantom's appeal has been its bigness. It's like got a soaring, sweeping sound. And I don't know when the last time as you guys saw it, but there's like a masquerade scene, which is a big party where everyone's in costume and the scale of it is part of uh the appeal of phantom phantom is a big show in every way like sound and sights and story and i don't think they would want to water that down you know
1: if they used led lights they'd save a lot of money send over the tip all right
0: michael paulson theater reporter new york times michael thanks for coming on the show
1: well you know that chandelier
7: It's a lot of
0: electricity.
1: Yeah, LED lights. They'd get much more use. They can go in another
0: 10 years. It's still scary when that thing comes flying down. All right, that's In Depth for today.